0: Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll have those stories for you in just a moment. But we begin tonight with breaking details of two major transit announcements expected tomorrow. One local and one crossing borders. Our Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more details on this. Let's start, Keith, here at home. TransLink, the Mayor's Council on Regional Transportation and the province will be holding a funding announcement tomorrow. What do we know about that one?
1: Yeah, it's big news and it's good news, Sophie. This is an announcement largely by the Mayor's Council and TransLink. The government is there because they are a partner in transit uh, projects in terms of funding. But the missing puzzle, uh, jigsaw puzzle here, the major piece has been missing is getting the mayors to agree on how they can fund 20% of these uh, transportation projects. Uh, That hasn't been successful until now. We're told now a deal has been reached by the mayors, which is very good news for those looking for a Broadway subway line and those Surrey light rail transit lines. It doesn't mean shovel's in the ground anytime soon, but it does mean they can move forward with these two projects, which have basically been stalled because the mayors haven't figured a way to fund their 20 percent of the projects. But that problem's been solved. So good news for those looking for those projects to go ahead.
0: Now, the other big announcement expected tomorrow, Keith, uh, will be when the premier will be joined by Washington State's Governor Jay Inslee. What's that one about?
1: Yeah, this is basically an update on a very conceptual plan, uh, kind of a sexy plan, of a high-speed train service between Vancouver, Seattle, and potentially uh, Portland. Uh, 400 kilometers an hour, a one- to two-hour journey. Uh, look, sounds great, but it's very expensive, $24 billion to $42 billion. But it's interesting, it comes on the heels of Washington State legislators just a few days ago agreeing to fund $1.2 million to actually establish a business plan, a business case, for this high-speed train. That's very much... I think, years in the in the future and very expensive. But short term, it's going to be that transit announcement tomorrow that finally we'll see the Broadway subway line and the Surrey light rail line at least take some steps towards shovels in the ground at some point.
0: A lot of people will be happy about that one. Thank you, Keith. Right. Now, new details emerging tonight about why BC booted its chance of hosting the 2026 FIFA Men's World Cup. FIFA's own documents reveal governments are on the hook for the full cost of safety and security. And that's not all. As Richard Sussman reports, now that B.C. has closed the door, the question is how many other Canadian cities will follow suit.
2: In a sport known for battles on the field, this soccer clash played out behind closed doors. More details emerging tonight on why BC backed away from a chance to host the FIFA Men's World Cup in 2026. And FIFA's guide for bidding, it explains governments will be totally on the hook for safety and security costs.
3: There were concerns uh, that uh, security costs weren't addressed. Those aren't conversations that have happened between uh, the province, the feds, the stadium, so it remains unclear. The contract
2: provides FIFA clause to change a signed agreement. Investigative journalist Andrew Jennings says BC is wise to walk away from dealings with FIFA.
4: The contract's a laugh.
5: You never sign it in a free world. I mean, FIFA still believes that it's not a free world, it's a world run by FIFA.
2: And Vancouver isn't alone in abandoning its bid. On Wednesday, Chicago, ironically the home of USA Soccer, said no thanks. And today, Minneapolis.
5: You're just wise to spend the money on schools, hospitals, um, things of value to the community. But there are those
2: that are still hopeful the United bid in BC could change their minds. Could we still be in the
1: game uh, and then manage our way through the process without... uh, committing to what appears to be an uncertain number in terms of the, of the cost of the event.
2: BC was set to host likely three games and would have been on the hook for all costs associated with BC Place. Toronto, Montreal and Edmonton are still considering the bid, but late today the Alberta government announced it would not be funding a bid and the city of Edmonton will be added alone. All of this has Soccer Canada worried. Speaking on a condition of anonymity, a senior member of Canada Soccer said, quote, negotiating with the BC NDP is like negotiating with the Beverly Hillbillies. But Soccer Canada and the United bid won't be able to remain anonymous for much longer. Tomorrow, Stephen Reid, the president of Canada Soccer and co-chair of the United 2026 bid committee, is expected to be in Edmonton as part of a FIFA announcement. A similar announcement was scheduled for Vancouver next week, which has now been cancelled. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria.
0: A pair of disturbing incidents near two Surrey schools to tell you about tonight. RCMP were called to the area of 188th Street and 70th Avenue in the Clayton Heights neighborhood on Tuesday. Two women walking between 5 and 5.30 that afternoon say they were approached by a man who emerged from an alley and appeared to be masturbating. RCMP say in one of the incidents, the man exposed himself. The suspect is described as male, 25 to 35 years old, wearing a black hoodie and black track pants. And RCMP in Surrey are also asking for the public's help to identify a pedestrian struck yesterday afternoon. It happened around 1:30 in the intersection of Martin Drive and Southmere Crescent. The victim is described as Caucasian, possibly in her 70s, with shoulder-length gray-brown hair, which was in a bun wrapped in cloth. She also has a distinctive mark above her right eye. She was wearing blue jeans, a blue hoodie, a purple, a pair of purple and black shoes. And a red wristwatch. If you have any information, you're asked to call Surrey RCMP or Crime Stoppers. A new flyer circulating in Richmond is raising concerns tonight. Those behind it oppose a proposed modular housing project for the homeless. Jill Bennett explains the controversy and why the city says actions by opponents
6: amount to fear mongering. This city-owned piece of land has been chosen as the site of Richmond's first temporary modular housing project. In
5: partnership with BC Housing um, to build a temporary modular housing
7: program with 40 units that will be there for five years. It's a supportive housing project, particularly aimed at people that are homeless.
6: The project hasn't been approved, but already there appears to be growing opposition. This week, copies of this flyer were left on cars in the area, accusing the city of bullying residents and pushing the project through. They also warn some residents will be service level three, something the city says is true, but it would only be eight of the 40 occupants.
7: Yes, some of those tenants will have some
5: severe mental health issues, addiction issues. Some of them may have criminal records, but that's only one portion of what makes up category three. Run idea! Run!
6: In Vancouver, there was a loud outcry by some residents opposed to having temporary homeless housing built close to schools. The Richmond location was chosen in part because it's close to transit and other supports, and not everyone is against it.
4: And unfortunately, we all have that view where we want to have affordable housing as long as it's not our neighbor, right? And so, but we need to be more tolerant.
8: Every city has their own their problems, their homelessness, you know, so we have to do something for them.
9: And I've been out to Maple Ridge and I see these 10 cities and you go, good God, you know, I don't want to be there.
6: The last count put Richmond's homeless population at 70, although many believe that number is higher. There will be more chances for people to voice their opinions to city council before a final vote is held. Jill Bennett, Global News.
0: Police are hoping someone will recognize a pair of suspects in a hoverboard robbery. RCMP today released this surveillance video of the young men entering business in the 1100 block of Pine Tree Way on January 25th. They say the pair used pepper spray to rob the victim of his hoverboard. Shortly after, when a second person confronted them, he was stabbed, suffering serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Both suspects are described as being in their mid to late teens with slim builds. One was wearing a dark hoodie and a jacket with white stripes down the sleeves. The other had a dark jacket with maroon sleeves and black sneakers with laces, with green laces, I should say. If you have any information, you're asked to contact Coquitlam RCMP. Fresh research tonight backs pro-ride-sharing voices in Metro Vancouver. The details are in a new report which indicates that as the government drags its heels on the issue, the province is missing out on millions of dollars in economic benefits. Nadia Stewart has the numbers and the push to get the deal done.
8: In all of Canada's major cities, ride-hailing has become a normal part of everyday life. Well, almost every major city hate it i wish we had uber when it comes to 21st century transportation vancouver is catching tourists by surprise for all the wrong reasons you know it's not here in vancouver oh, oh we don't know yet uh, it's a bad thing for yeah. vancouver
7: <laughs> we shouldn't be having people from around the globe saying how do i get around in vancouver
8: ian Tostenson speaking on behalf of a newly formed coalition of 16 metro vancouver organizations who say it's taken far too long to make such an obvious decision
7: We're so leading edge on food, technology, environment. The mayor talks about being the greenest city in the universe, I get that. But transportation, we're like the last in North America?
8: Last and possibly missing out on millions of dollars in economic spinoffs, according to new research by ride-hailing company Lyft. They compared Vancouver to Portland and Seattle, estimating the potential economic impact ride-hailing could have here. Up to $35 million in additional spending in the local economy by passengers and $33 million in the value of time saved. Lyft also estimates total driver take-home earnings in Vancouver could top $35 million. That's the highest earnings estimate out of any of the 10 major Canadian cities where Lyft doesn't currently operate.
7: If you can increase the revenue and strength of business in B.C. over transportation and and make it more convenient at the same time for consumers, then I think it's a win-win scenario.
8: It's also a scenario in limbo. Services like Lyft and Uber the focus of a highly anticipated government study due later this spring. Nadia Stewart, Global News. Critics are teeing off today on suggestions made by
0: Vancouver Mayor Gregor Robertson about the future of Langara Golf Course. The mayor is being accused of blindsiding council during a discussion about drainage on the property. Aaron MacArthur is following this story for us tonight. Aaron, Uh, The mayor floating the idea of turning parts of Langara into a park. And some are raising questions about what his motives actually
10: are.
11: Yeah, Sophie, Langara golf course. Uh, When the sun is out, usually packed. But really, it's just a fraction of the use that other green spaces in the city would get. The mayor's ideas touched a nerve. Some are calling it crafty politics. Others are calling it shady. A smattering of foursomes out hacking it around Langara Thursday afternoon. The city-owned golf course has become the focus of a fight at City Hall when the mayor brought up the subject of redevelopment here. I have a strike and replace motion. The issue was originally about spending three million dollars to upgrade the drainage at Langara. But when the mayor's motion passed along party lines, it became about a city government that ignores the public now this is kind of like the, the last breathing days of a party that's dying and a mayor who's completely a lame duck it seems to me that's what they're trying to do create a wedge issue in the election the timing is very suspect it's a real challenge for staff to come back with a comprehensive report in such a short period of time tens of thousands of new homes have been built along the South Canby corridor and tens of thousands more are coming. According to Vision Vancouver, this is about providing the right mix of recreation opportunities for this new community.
10: It's 114 acres. It's right on the Camby Corridor. Uh, there's a college adjacent to it, Langara College, that has no access to sports fields.
11: Six years ago, the mayor supported an idea that was floated to carve out a portion of the golf course along Camby Street to build more housing and make the city potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. There is no mention of housing in this motion, and it's all extremely vague. But that has some park board commissioners worried.
3: For it to come out of the blue and be brought forward this way, um, which doesn't feel very transparent and a great way to go about having a significant conversation around a significant public asset, people are gun-shy.
11: Langara makes the park board about a million dollars a year and is one of the more affordable options for people in the city to play golf. But with park space at a premium redistribution, is always an issue that comes up now staff have until july to come back with recommendations if there are any and there's cooperation to be had with the park board remember there is a municipal election this fall and that is likely to have a far bigger impact on the landscape than any Mm. municipal report so sure
0: all right thanks for that aaron Right now, though, we are hearing tonight from a thrill seeker whose video has prompted a warning from first responders. The footage shows the daredevil scaling one of the tallest cranes in Vancouver. And as Ted Czernicki reports, it's just the latest stunt to be posted online in hopes of gaining social media fame.
9: There's never been a shortage of thrill seekers in this world and there's never been a better opportunity to show off one's exploits with the explosion of social media. This is the latest video to be posted on YouTube by someone going by the handle KEA.IU. It's
2: such an amazing experience as well it's very like calming once I'm like at the top and while I'm climbing and I'm just like focused in and nothing else really matters.
9: The motivation behind a posting like this, yes there's the adrenaline. There's a possible monetary reward if enough people watch the video. And there's that moment of fame. But first responders see stunts like this turning
1: famous for the wrong reasons. If someone gets in trouble or gets stuck, um, firstly, it's uh, a big danger to our responders. Obviously, we have a technical rescue team that's well-trained and highly skilled in getting people out of those kind of situations. But there's always an inherent risk to a rescue of that type. And there's, of course, the drain on our resources as well. Take, for example, this
9: rescue in Toronto where a woman had climbed onto a crane hook. There's more than a dozen first responders involved in her rescue, not to mention that one or more of them could themselves fall to their death.
2: I definitely feel pretty bad, but we hope it doesn't come down to that.
9: Last summer, two American photographers climbed up the Lionsgate Bridge. Traffic was stopped for hours as first responders talked them down. Both adult men were charged with mischief, but only given a conditional discharge. It was a court case this latest crane climber watched and realized there wasn't much that could happen to him if he was caught.
2: I know that, like, as a minor, they can't really do much, but I'm still worried about, like, getting a criminal record or anything because I could, like... Really mess up my life with school as well as, like, finding a job or traveling.
9: He says he's only been doing this for about a year, plans to continue, but definitely does not recommend others follow in his footsteps. Ted Schnacki, Global News.
0: Concerns about public safety are prompting the Federal Transportation Department to ground a small BC airline. Transport Canada is suspending the Air Operator Certificate of Orca Airways, citing repeated failures by the airline to comply with safety regulations. Orca Airways flies between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. It will not be allowed to resume commercial air service until it can show consistent compliance with aviation safety regulations. Calgary-based Integra Air is now stepping in to operate Orca's flights. That's something it says the companies have been working toward for months. A new study is putting bottled water to the test. Researchers have been examining the makeup of some of the leading brands, and what they've found suggests that water may not be as pure as advertised.
10: Bottled water is a huge industry in the U.S. Now, new tests from journalism group Orb Media and the State University of New York have discovered tiny particles of plastic in some water. Researchers tested more than 250 bottles using this special kind of dye that sticks to plastic. Under certain wavelengths of light, it causes them to sparkle like stars in a night sky. Plastic was identified in 93% of samples. The concentration ranged from zero to more than 10,000 likely plastic particles in a single bottle. It's an indication that we should be concerned. It's not catastrophic, the numbers that we're seeing, but it's concerning. Um, and especially if you look at then, if you're drinking only bottled water and you do this every day. Researchers tested 11 popular brands of water in nine countries, including the U.S. The World Health Organization says currently there is no evidence microplastics affects human health. Some scientists say more research is needed.
2: As we become more aware of the prevalence of microplastics and the potential harm that they might cause, I think we need to start thinking now about how we can reduce those inputs
10: the international bottled water association tells cbs news there is no consensus on testing for microplastics or the potential health impacts the group says this new study is not based on sound science and is unnecessarily scaring consumers meg oliver cbs news new york
0: the federal government has announced more than $12 million in funding to help protect endangered southern resident killer whales off the B.C. coast. $9.1 million will go toward developing testing technologies that would alert vessels to the presence of whales. That's in order to lower the risk of collisions. Another $3 million will go to four research projects that include studying the impacts of underwater noise and limits on prey. But conservation groups say the time for study is over. They want an emergency cabinet order from the feds to establish priority feeding refuges, restricted fishing and slower speed limits for commercial vessels. People in a small Vancouver Island community are taking action tonight over the treatment of their children. The First Nations community in the village of Anakla near Bamfield has declared a public health emergency. One in five of their children have been taken into care, many of them away from their families and culture. Kylie Stanton now on what they're doing to bring their children home.
12: I mean, yeah, we're like any other neighborhood, we have our incidents.
3: There's no denying there are problems here.
12: That's a small community. But we the all...
3: main concern is the village of Anakla keeps getting smaller every time a child is taken away.
12: We have to reverse this trend. Say
3: hi again. Hi. The Huey at First Nation has declared the treatment of their children by the province of B.C. a public health emergency. Currently, the First Nation have 47 of their 220 children in care. That's more than 20%. The numbers have grown exponentially in the past two years. What members say is the result of the government's default practices. But now, they're tackling the issue head on. Our vision is to keep families together. On Wednesday, Hueyed had, had a major victory. A mother will now be reunited with her baby that was plucked away by B.C.'s child welfare system three days after she was born, but only after nearly two months battling in court.
7: It's not a one-off case. It's not an outlier that uh, there are issues of systemic racism uh, in, in in the way child welfare services are provided.
3: The nation is ready to offer ongoing supervision and support in this case, all part of an independent social services project focused on bringing children home. They're implementing panel recommendations aimed at reducing the number of children in care by keeping them either with family or in the community. The
12: home of Ben and Clara Clapis, they now have one child in their care.
3: Many are already stepping up to ensure they remain safe, healthy, and connected to their culture and values. More importantly, putting a stop to the trauma.
12: Taking of of children is a continuation of the old colonial policy, which was to remove the Indian from the child.
3: That's just another layer of traumas on top of hundreds of years of trauma. And that's just a Band-Aid effect. So far, the First Nation has put forward more than $600,000 to implement these recommendations. But they say it's a shared responsibility and depend on the province and the federal government to match that funding in order to forge ahead. As of right now, there's no obligation to do it. This is very much reminiscent of the residential school system. While the pressure is on, the government says changes to the legislation are required before all parties can start working together.
2: I think that's a critical uh, issue that uh, legislation doesn't allow us to do
13: right now.
3: But here, the crisis can't wait. One more day could mean one more child apprehended.
12: Walk the talk. That, that's what I say.
3: Kylie Stanton, Global News. <laughs>
0: Enders in Miami trying to help those trapped after a pedestrian bridge under construction suddenly collapses. A scene of helplessness and chaos after the overpass near the campus of Florida International University came crashing down onto traffic below. Firefighters in Miami saying tonight that at least four people have been found dead in the rubble of that collapsed bridge. They were discovered among the eight cars that were pinned underneath the massive slabs and debris that came down.
12: The 950-ton pedestrian bridge collapsed without warning. Bridges down, possible Crushing cars, drivers pinned under massive slabs of concrete. It sounded like an earthquake. Eyewitnesses in shock. It was
5: like an explosion. It was like a bomb.
12: Susie Bermudez says she missed it by seconds.
13: I'm very grateful to be alive. Thank God. I was very close to losing
7: my life. Emergency crews rushed in to treat the injured. We started running towards over there, we just see these cars, like, crushed down, and everybody getting out the cars and beeping and beeping. We're just, like, terrified.
12: The bridge next to Florida International University had been built after a student died last year walking across the busy road. Seen here in an architectural rendering, it had just been installed on Saturday, built using what's known as accelerated bridge construction technology, meant to finish projects faster and more cost-effectively. A 175-foot section was prefabricated next to the street and then moved into position
7: in just hours. There's some risk that if you don't get them right, then there will be some much bigger forces in the bridge than you might have expected.
12: The bridge was scheduled to open to foot traffic next year. Unia Construction, the company that built it, says it's cooperating with investigators and that our family's thoughts and prayers go out to everyone affected by this terrible tragedy. But this is not the first time the company's been under scrutiny. It was sued after a makeshift bridge injured a TSA worker at Fort Lauderdale's airport. That case is still pending.
1: We're going to have rescuers here probably through the night, if not longer. Uh, The focus at
12: this point is going to remain on search and rescue. Tonight, the National Transportation Safety Board is sending investigators to the scene to find out what went wrong.
0: Investigators in Texas believe a worker dragging his foot along a factory floor sparked an explosion and fire at a chemical plant. Two workers were hurt and a third is unaccounted for. The plant is located about 80 kilometers southwest of Dallas. The mayor says the facility mixes chemicals, some of them toxic, that are mainly used by the oil and gas industry. The wind is currently pushing smoke and fumes away from area residents, but the city could issue an evacuation order if that changes. Well, the artwork of a well-known First Nations artist is now beginning to adorn the walls of St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. As Linda Aylesworth reports, it's hoped this will make the Catholic-based hospital more welcoming to Aboriginal patients and visitors, particularly in light of the truth and reconciliation process.
13: In a corner, in a waiting room at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, First Nations artist Jerry Whitehead quietly works his magic. For some reason, I like uh, playing with corners. In a way, it's kind of like the
12: patients here, right? They're they're caught in a corner somehow.
13: And so with a skilled hand and bright colours, he makes the corners playful. It loosens them up. Them are the patients, all patients, but with a particular focus on the Indigenous ones.
12: Hospitals can be very scary and sterile places and artwork is extremely important in helping patients feel comfortable and welcome in the environment.
13: Providence Healthcare didn't have to look hard to find the perfect artist for the task of painting murals throughout the hospital.
12: Our Indigenous patients were very clear with us that as part of reconciliation, seeing themselves and their culture reflected in our buildings would be very important to
13: them. Whitehead is well-known in the community. His murals grace the walls of many a downtown building.
12: Once they see it, they know it's me, right? It's, it's, a, it's a native guy, he's, he's here now.
13: <laughs> in his effort to make others happy, he draws on things that have long made him happy.
12: I do a lot of northern lights. I used to watch them, you know, I used to lay around on the ground. Each night watching them, northern Saskatchewan.
13: He even incorporates messages in his art, words that bring back fond memories.
5: Um, oh, um.
13: Whitehead has come a long way since the days when pages from an old Sears catalog were his canvas, a lead tipped bullet, his pencil. But the joy he derives from sharing his art remains the same.
2: I hope
12: it gives him a good feeling, right? You know, just. Even just by looking at all the colors, right, it just, you know, make them feel better inside somehow.
0: Linda Aylesworth, Global News.
5: I'm really sorry about you that. You
0: didn't have your shot of honey before?
5: Yeah, that usually soothes the vocal cords when you're in such a so, situation that I'm in.
0: If you need me to jump in. Yes. To start to lose the voice. I'll tag you in. Okay. I'll be right here. Just
5: tag you in. You can go. Okay. Like wrestling.
0: I'm going to keep an eye on your script. Okay, cool you um, don't
5: follow it. But. I know I don't follow it. <laughs> With Brock Besser no longer raining down goals, the Vancouver Canucks offense has reached drought conditions. Wherever they play, for them, it's now the Atacama Desert. Last night in Anaheim was Vancouver's third straight shutout loss. The only goals they are scoring these days are in warm-up.
11: And the Canucks' misery. It's a third straight shutout loss for Vancouver. 212 minutes nine seconds without a goal
7: most expected the Canucks offense would suffer with Brock Besser and a few other key forwards out of the lineup but it has dried up completely Canucks are now on the verge of setting a franchise record for longest goal drought which is 234 minutes 52 seconds set just two years ago it's Canucks veterans who've really struggled all year. Henrik Sedin, incredibly, has just two goals the entire season and hasn't scored since November. Sam Gagne has just one goal in all of 2018. Jake Bertanen's productivity has suffered of late after a fairly consistent first half, but he's not exactly playing with offensively gifted linemates.
5: Centers, <laughs> Besser shoots, he scores!
7: One guy shouldn't make this much difference, but Brock Besser's absence is a gaping hole the Canucks cannot seem to fill. In the five games since his season-ending injury, the Canucks are 0-5 with three goals scored. Yes, they also miss Marcus Grandland and Sven Berchi, but without Besser, the Canucks not only suffer at 5-on-5, five five, but especially on the power play where they have yet to score since Besser went out. The only positive, the Canucks are now just three points out of last place overall. If they sink all the way down to 31st, it will help their cause in the draft lottery. And maybe, just maybe, they will land Swedish defenseman Rasmus Dahlin and give them another major building block for the future. Barry DeLay, Global Sports.
5: Okay, so as Barry said in the last five Canuck games, they've scored three goals. Contrast that with tonight's game between Chicago and Winnipeg. In the first Winnipeg first period, Winnipeg scored five. In one period, they scored more than the Canucks have scored in the last five games. Two more than the Canucks have scored. Paul Stastny with that goal. Brian Little with that goal. That made it four to one. Yeah, Chicago's a shell of their former selves right now. This is nice passing. Nice, nice, nice. Kyle Connor, five one can turn the game it's Madonna with their defense to offense. No, it's not Madonna.
0: Sorry. Okay,
5: it's Raptors, it's Pacers, it's DeLon Wright from Kyle Lowry. Pacers trying to hang with the Raptors, not easy to do. Lowry from three. He had 13. DeMar DeRozan's going to steal this one. 21 straight games, the Raptors have scored 100 points or more. In their last 20, they've only lost twice. Best team in the East. Well, it seems every year the NFL plays a game of quarterback tinder where certain teams decide to swipe right on free agents who could very well disappoint them. Every NFL team lacking a good quarterback gets desperate around this time of year, desperate enough to throw big money at someone they hope will one day carry them across the threshold, but more often than not, it ends in bitter divorce. This year, the biggest target was former Redskins quarterback Kirk Cousins. Minnesota officially signed him today for huge money, 84 million over three years, all guaranteed. The good news for the Vikings and Cousins, Minnesota nearly made the Super Bowl with their backup quarterback, Case Keenum, and Cousins is better than Keenum. I came here because of the chance to win. I felt like it was, it was a, probably the best chance, um, and, and that's all that matters in this business. But more importantly than that, um, the, the chance to win comes from the fact that I believe in the leadership of this organization. Uh, there has to be a commitment to win from from ownership. There has to be uh, the ownership, the, the general manager, the head coach, and the quarterback have to all be on the same page. I should have went to my purple tie. I think that would have worked better. The Arnold Palmer Tiger Woods has won this tournament eight times. We have
11: never seen him make a
5: seventy-one foot birdie putt. Ooh, Tiger's
0: coming back. I mean, who can't do that, uh,
5: really? You can do that if it's downhill and very narrow. Like with walls? Yeah, like, like you would at a, yeah, a mini-ball. Yeah, exactly. Uh, four under par for Tiger. Jimmy Walker, five under par. Henrik Stentz in the lead are nine birdies in the day, including seven in an eight-hole stretch. He leads at eight under Nick Taylor, shot an even par 72. By the way, Tiger is now the favorite for the Masters, if you want to make a bet down in Vegas. I know.
0: The favorite for the Masters.
5: I know. Things have changed dramatically. So retro. I know. (laughs) I know. It's so 2001 now. Here is today's snow report. A few centimeters of fresh snow has fallen on the mountains across B.C. in the last 24 hours. Whistler Blackcomb's base, a little over 300 centimeters, 430 at Grouse, 415 Cypress, 389 at Sasquatch. Revelstoke base, 255 centimeters, 215 Manning Park, 273 Powder King, and 226 Mount Washington. Big White's base, 310, 262 Silver Star, 237 Sun Peaks, and 279 at Apex.
10: Coming up on ET Canada, Katy Perry kisses a contestant and now faces a kissing controversy. And Weird Al Yankovic reflects on his friendships with Lynn Manuel Miranda and Kurt Cobain. That's coming up at 7 right after the news hour. Back to you, Sophie.
0: All right. Thanks, Sangita. Okay, Scott and Mark Kelly are identical twin astronauts. They're the the
5: Sadines of space. They are the (laughs)
0: Sadines of space. And they're the only identical twins who have gone into space. But after one of them set the record for the most consecutive days spent in orbit, it turns out they may not be identical anymore.
4: Hmm. Twin astronauts Mark and Scott Kelly, their DNA identical for their entire lives. Until that is, one of them spent nearly a year in space. The Kelly brothers were studied to determine the effects of long-term space travel during and after Scott's time on the International Space Station. This morning, the first results from that groundbreaking study revealing that 7% of Scott Kelly's genes did not return to normal following his return to Earth two years ago, suggesting that now the identical twins are no longer completely identical. According to NASA, Scott's 340 days in orbit may have activated what scientists are now calling space genes altering the astronaut's immune system, bone formation, eyesight, and other bodily processes. Probably almost
7: half the time I've been here between sleeping and, and working on the computer, I've spent in a, basically a box the
4: size of a, a phone booth. The study finding that Scott's chromosomes lengthened while he was in space, making him two inches taller, decreasing his body mass, and changing his gut bacteria. All of it taking place as Scott's brother Mark, a retired astronaut himself, remained on Earth as a control subject. Scientists say increased exercise and reduced calorie intake could also be possible causes. And while most of these genetic changes reverted to normal following Scott's return to Earth, that 7% of his genetic code that was altered hasn't and may stay that way. What happens to the human body in space has until now been the stuff of science fiction, now scientific proof of a real-life space oddity. Two brothers born the same, now redefined by outer space.